And go ahead and be seated. Good morning, everyone. some more, doing a little bit different of a uh, order of service through this series, and uh, ultimately we're going to have some more worship that follows the message this morning. This morning we're launching into a new four-week series in the book of Ruth. I believe that it's one of the most moving stories in all of scripture, and it has all the elements of a good love story. As often as I make fun of my wife's love of Hallmark movies, I do sometimes fall for a good love story. As we approach Ruth, I have a challenge for you. Ruth being only four chapters is meant to be read in one sitting, but we're spreading it out over four weeks. And I know some of you who love to read novels, that you like sometimes to go back to the back chapter and read that and then start from page one. And I would encourage you not to do that. Each week, stay with us in the chapter where we are and don't jump ahead. Just as you wait each week for the next episode of your favorite TV drama, do the same with Ruth. When a show is really good, I mean really good, it enthralls you. It captures your emotions. You walk away from each episode thinking about what just happened, the unanswered questions you have, like when it's a cliffhanger. Your imagination runs wild. You speculate over what you think is going to happen next week. Which way is the director going to take the story and what will happen in the lives of the main characters? I want to ask you to treat Ruth in the same way. The author to me writes in such a captivating way, he seems so... Matter of fact, and when he writes of tragedy, he seems like he's so indifferent and without feeling or care. And you think, hey, could you be a little bit more compassionate here? But as you dig into the text, you begin to realize that every line, every name, every place mentioned has significance and is vitally important to the story and is revealing something that connects everything together. He begins the story by revealing us the time, place, and the people the main characters of the story. And I ask you to open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. And let's start in verse 1. And it says there, During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem and Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. And so right here in the beginning, we see that he's revealing the time that all of this is unfolding. And he says it's during the time of the judges. And so before we jump in further, I want to give you a little bit of an Old Testament history review. So in the book of Genesis, God calls the people to himself and he tells Abraham to go to a land that he's going to show him, a land called Canaan, the place known as the promised land. We have the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and through a famine, a pharaoh, And God's favor on Joseph, Jacob's family, moves near Egypt, and they flourish there. The Israelites grow in such number that in fear of this this new Pharaoh, enslaves them in Egypt. In Exodus, God raises up a deliverer in Moses to lead his people to freedom. This generation ends up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because of their disobedience, complaining, grumbling, and unbelief. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, God's people are on the verge of the promised land, and in the book of Joshua... Caleb and Joshua lead the people into the promised land where they establish themselves and they settle there. Then we get to the book of Judges, just before Ruth. And if you turn one page to the left, you'll see the description of what the time of the Judges was like. 
Just one page over, the very final verse, Judges 21, 25, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what seemed right to him. The final verse of Judges describes the entire period. This is what it was like in Bethlehem in the time of Ruth. The people of God would repeatedly reject him, become engrossed in immorality and the worship of false gods. It was a time that was full of civil unrest and lawlessness. The Israelites would be attacked and defeated by foreign enemies, and God would raise up a judge to deliver them. They would have a short time of peace, and for over 300 years, this cycle would repeat over and over again. Some scholars believe that the time of Ruth is set close to the middle of Judges, maybe Judges chapter 10. It's important to note that Ruth is not advancing Old Testament history here like the books prior, but it's taking a pause to bring an important story right out of the middle of the historical period to give us a special revelation of God and his eternal plan at work. So this leads us to the place where everything was happening, and the author identifies it as a famine a place of famine named Bethlehem. Biblical famines had many natural causes, such as disease and locust invasions, loss of livestock and warfare. They were often believed to be God's judgment upon a sinful, rebellious people, though in the case of Ruth, the author is silent about the cause of the famine. The mention of a famine, though, served a threefold purpose by the author. First, how famines through tragedy often are used by God to advance his plan for his people such as the time, if you remember, that happened with Joseph. The author hints that there just might be a thematic link to God's promise to the patriarchs and that the reader might want to watch for the development of this in the story. And thirdly, finally, the author notes that the famine forced the family of a man from Bethlehem to migrate to Moab. The author wants you to look for God's sovereign plan in this. And ironically here, the place, Bethlehem, the the name Bethlehem means house of bread. It was to be the place where God's people flourished. It was formerly described as a land flowing with milk and honey, but now, more than likely because of their disobedience and rampant immorality and idolatry, God allows a famine to overtake the land, and the house of bread has no bread. Imagine with me for a moment what it would be like to be completely without food. A country has never experienced such a thing since maybe the Great Depression, and those of us sitting here have never experienced a time without a plentiful supply of food. In the season of COVID, there were, of course, times when the shelves were bare because of people in fear making a run of things. If you remember the great toilet paper scarcity. (laughs) We've recently experienced supply chain problems where items were at times hard to find, where you go to the stores and the shelves were empty. And then, of course, there's the great recent baby formula fiasco where new moms, I'm sure, were experiencing a genuine scare, worried about what were they going to feed their infants. But imagine a time in our country when food pantries at your home were completely bare, where you had nothing in your refrigerator or your deep freezer. Grocery stores were shut down. All restaurants and fast food establishments didn't exist. Christian charities had nothing to hand out. All there was is maybe an occasional government bread line where you could go and pick up a couple loaves of bread. Thoughts of eating healthy is the least of your concerns. Your focus now is on how are we going to survive? You're starving. This is the situation for the characters in this story. 
So a man decides to flee the land with no food and leads his wife and two sons on a 50-mile trek by foot to a place called Moab. We need to pause just for a moment to understand a little more about this place. So I want to give you a little background on Moab. Genesis 19 accounts for the origins of the nation of Moab. After Lot and his daughters escaped from Sodom and its destruction, they lived in a cave in the hills near Zorah. His daughters, realizing all the men were dead, believing there was no hope for them to have sons to carry on their line, get their father, Lot, drunk, seduce him, and have sex. Both conceived and bore children. Lot's oldest daughter named her son Moab, from whom the Moabites descended, and Lot's younger daughter called her son Ben-Ami, from whom the Ammonites descended. The land of Moab was known for several things, none of them good. In the book of Numbers, Moab's king hired Balaam to curse Israel when they came out of Egypt. Also in Numbers 25, the women of Moab seduced the Israelite men into sexual immorality, all kinds of idolatry, every kind of wickedness, and to the extent that God's judgment led to the death of 24,000. And in Judges 3, it states that when King Eglon reigned, the Moabites oppressed the Israelites. In the days of Ruth, Moab was the enemy of Israel. The Moabites continued on in their practices of sexual immorality and pagan idolatry to the point where they sacrificed their own children to appease their gods. This is where this family from Bethlehem is heading. It must be a very desperate situation for a husband and a father to take his family to a place like that. Let's read on in Ruth, verse 2. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of the two sons were Malan and Chilion. They were Ephrites from Bethlehem and Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. So here the author is revealing some of the main characters of the story. In the Near East, names were given for their specific meanings. Names were important. They'd be given as an honor or because of a certain desirable character trait or in view of an envisioned calling or purpose for the child. Abimelech means God is king. And the name Naomi means pleasant or lovely. Those are pretty cool names. And then there's the boys. Naming our children can be both interesting and challenging. Lisa and I chose the name Stephen, Andrew, and Benjamin for our three boys. And I know that many of you are thinking, right, that makes sense. A pastor and his wife, of course, they're going to choose biblical names. I wish I could say that I was that spiritual. We didn't go to the Bible as our source. We went to a book called 1001 Names for Your Children. We chose those names because we liked them. We liked how they sounded. We liked how they rolled off the tongue with the last name Donahue. And there's no one in either of our histories with those names who were experienced as miserable people. You know, when you're discussing names and your husband goes, what about, and you say, no way, I knew a guy in high school with that name and he was a big jerk. There's no way we're naming our son that. We don't want to name our kids after people in which we have lasting bad memories. When we were trying to decide on a name for our firstborn son, we had decided we would call him Jacob. Then one weekend we were at the Merrimack River and we were playing around on the beach and there was a bunch of parents with their kids there and within probably a 20-minute period we heard several different moms calling out for their boys, Jacob, it's time to come in. Jacob, it's time to leave. Jacob, we're going to eat lunch now. Jacob, stop hitting your brother. It was in that moment I received a revelation from God on high. We are not calling our firstborn son Jacob. 
And now that I think about it, I'm sure glad that we didn't. Because one of the patriarchs was Jacob, and you know that his name was, uh, meant deceiver. And my oldest son, Stephen, is the exact opposite of that. He's a man of character and integrity and honesty. It was in that moment that we just fell in love with the name Stephen. And now it fits. And of course, then there are those parents who name their children, and when you hear their names, your heart sinks. You say to yourself, why? Why would you do that to your child? You know, the kind of name where the kids on the playground will have a heyday making all kinds of nasty rhymes about their name, all because mom and dad thought it was a cool name. Lisa and I often joke with each other, reflecting on times we blew it with our boys, and we kind of look at each other and smile and say, well, that's another three years of counseling. This is how I feel about the names Abimelech and Naomi gave their sons. Malon means weakling, and Chilean means pining our little vessel. That's kind of sad, isn't it? With names like that, you're talking about a lifetime of counseling. Unfortunately, the story quickly turns and takes a dramatic turn, and the author wasted no time or sentiment in revealing several tragedies in the life of this family. Let's read verses 3 through 5. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab for about ten years, both Malon and Chilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. It's like, wow, that, that seems kind of abrupt, doesn't it? It, it seems kind of a matter of fact. It, it feels insensitive, uncaring. Just kind of the brute, cold facts are laid out there. No pastor's heart here. You kind of feel the coldness. It kind of smacks you in the face. A 10-year nightmare summed up in three quick verses. There's no details. There's no explanation. It, it only leaves us to speculate. What the heck happened here? How did these three men die? They fled Bethlehem to avoid death, and now this is what happens to their family. It, it's tragic. And, and where is God in all this? Naomi's name means lovely and pleasant, and she's now a widow who has been grieving the loss of her husband. And shortly after this, she lost both of her sons, and parents are not meant to outlast their children. I can't even imagine the heartbreak and the grief. All she has is her two daughter-in-laws who, after 10 years, are barren. They have no children, no one to carry on their line. This is the curse of all curses in Israel, when your name stops with you. Women, picture yourself in Naomi's shoes. She's past her childbearing years. She lives in a patriarchal culture where there is no education or employment for women. Her names of security, her means of security laid in having a man, a husband. And if he passed, then it's placed in having sons who could provide. Women could not receive family inheritances of money, possessions, or property. They were basically second-class citizens. And there are many cultures that are still like that today. But praise be to Jesus Christ. He's the one who introduced the truth that women are created equal with men, created in God's image, and are bestowed with the same rights, honors, and privileges of men. And Christian men who are true followers of Christ believe this and live life daily as if this is true. Amen? Here Naomi sits in a place of utter despair and hopelessness, but don't miss this. This sets the stage for a first glimmer of hope. Verses 6 and 7. 
She and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to Judah. This is the first time that God is mentioned in the story. Naomi hears through the grapevine that the famine in Bethlehem has ended. God has heard the cries of the people, and in his grace and mercy has opened the land of Bethlehem to once again produce food. This is evidence of God at work, where he sees darkness leading to despair. He shines a light through with a glimmer of hope. Let's read on in verse 8 and 9. Naomi said to them, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. I think this is the time in the movie where even the strongest of men begin to have tears rolling down their face. Up to this point, the author has covered 10 years without one bit of dialogue, and these are the first words spoken by anyone. You can only imagine what these women have gone through together. Tragedy after tragedy, loss after loss. And remember, it's not only Naomi who has lost and is in grief, but Orpah and Ruth have lost their husbands as well. There must have been many nights filled with tears of grief, with a sense of darkness and hopelessness. All they have now is each other. Naomi's words appear to be words of kindness. After all, Naomi has been through the author. After all, Naomi has been through the author is revealing a tender side. She tells Orpah and Ruth, "You need to go home, back to your parents' home, to your own people who can provide for you." You're young enough to find a man and to marry again and to have children. You have a shot at having your own family, a real shot at happiness, of provision and security if you go back home and be with your parents and be with your people. Naomi kisses them, a kiss goodbye, and all three are weeping uncontrollably, embracing, holding on to one another. What a scene. And in verse 10... It says, they said to her, we insist on returning with you to your people. No, no, Naomi, we insist. We will not leave you alone. We cannot leave you alone. We'll go back to Bethlehem with you. And Naomi will have none of this. She refuses to take their no as a final answer. She now builds a convincing argument for why the young women must return home to their parents. Let's read on in verses 11 through 13. But Naomi replied, return, my daughters. Why do you want to go home with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. To give you a little background in this, in the book of Deuteronomy, God had established a way for widows in these situations to be provided for. It was called the Leverite vow. If a husband died, his brother would take responsibility for caring for the widow. But because both Naomi's sons had died, there was no one in her family line, no other sons to step up and take care of Orpah and Ruth. Naomi has absolutely nothing to offer them except what appears to be a life of poverty. 
She's telling them, if you come with me, you have nothing. You have no chance of a bright, happy future. But if you go back home, you have a shot at it all. At least you'll have a shot. Naomi brings her argument to a climax when she tells them, No, my daughters, my life is too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand is turned against me. It's obvious that in this moment, Naomi, through all her loss and suffering, believes God's against her, that he's cursed her life. And if Orpah and Ruth stick with her, their lives are going to be cursed as well. Verse 14. Again, they wept loudly, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. They break down weeping uncontrollably again as they're holding on to one another. The depth of emotion repeatedly displayed amongst these three women to me reveals the depth of love and concern and attachment. They genuinely desire to see the best for one another. They love each other. Orpah kisses Naomi, and as we will see in the text verse, in the next verse, it's a kiss goodbye. She finally understands what Naomi is telling her and believes she's right. My chance for a happy future lies in going back home. But Ruth... She clings tightly to Naomi and refuses to let go. And the word in this verse, clung, is the same one that's used in Genesis 2.24. Speaking of when a man and a woman comes together in marriage and they leave and cleave to one another. It's a picture of total loving commitment, an unbreakable bond of devotion. Naomi gives it one more shot to convince Ruth to leave her and go with her sister-in-law. In verse 15. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. This brings us to some of the most beautiful words recorded in all the scriptures. Verse 16 and 17. But Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Wow! What, what powerful words. What, what words of love and loyalty and commitment and devotion. These words are often used in wedding vows. They're they're beautiful words of love and commitment and devotion and loyalty. uh, Words of a dying of self for the sake of another. This is one of those moments where everything changes. One of those times in a life when a decision changes the course of a life forever. Ruth's words are a picture of the gospel. They're words of redemption. They're words involved in conversion. A conversion by faith. Naomi, I will follow your God. There must have been something she saw in that family over the course of those 10 years. The the way they lived, the way they loved, the way they lived out their faith in an immoral world that drew her to want to know their God. In Ruth's words, we see a person who has decided to leave her friends and family behind, to leave the place she called home, to leave her religious upbringing and the worship of her false gods, to follow Naomi, to believe in and follow her God. She's declaring that for the rest of her life, until the day she dies, she is committing herself to Naomi, to Naomi's God, and to her people. 
Her words are so profound that the rest of the journey to Bethlehem is in silence. The author records no further words that are spoken between them. Let's read on in verses 18 and 19. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival, and the local women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Once again, I want you to try to step into Naomi's shoes. Think about what it must have been like for her to return home after 10 years in such a humbled and broken state. She left full, she returns empty. Returning to the people and place that she abandoned, who her and her family turned their backs on in times when they got tough, and went to a land where their enemies lived. She left with a husband and two sons, and she comes back with a despised Moabite woman. She was destitute, she had lost everything. And in her mind, she's thinking she returned as a beggar, and maybe her life was destined to roam the streets begging for bread. How would the people respond? Will she be welcomed or shunned? Will there be any friends still there who may have mercy and show generosity, or will they be outright rejects? It appears that some recognize and remember her. Can this be Naomi? And the author presents their tone as excited to see her. It actually says the town grew with excitement. And remember, her name means lovely and pleasant, but to her, her life is far from either. In verse 20 and 21, she says, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Some of them remember. Could that be Naomi? I'm sure that her appearance was different. I'm sure her countenance was different. I'm sure that they thought they recognized her, but they weren't sure. And she says, stop calling me Naomi. My name is Mara. And that name means bitter. And as she bemoans her pitiful existence before the people of God, she uses the name of God four times. Names the Israelites there would know. Names that reveal two things about God. And the first one is that God is great. Twice she uses the name Almighty. And in the Hebrew, that's the word Shaddai, the name for God that recognizes that he is all-powerful and sovereign over all. And Naomi is right to call him Almighty, for there is not one detail in the book of Ruth that is not under the sovereign hand of God. Not one detail in her life or in ours can be attributed to chance or fate or karma. Job uses the word Shaddai 30 times. And we know his life well. He was the one who said, it is the Lord who gives and the Lord who takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's the one who said, though the Lord slay me, yet I will trust in him. It brings us to the one question that every human being through the ages has asked. If God is great and if he's sovereign over all and such bad things happen to us, then is he really good? Which leads us to the second name 
that she used, which reveals God is good. She uses the name Lord, and that is in all caps, and in the Hebrew, it is the name Yahweh, which is the covenant name for God, the God of promise, the God who is always faithful and true. It's no shocker to any of us that in this moment, Naomi is wrestling with doubt, that she has been embittered by her circumstances, that she feels all hope is lost. And we all struggle with those feelings during some of the toughest, darkest, and most painful times in our lives, don't we? Then we remember the times in our past. When God had ordained sorrowful tragedy in our lives, to set the stage for a surprising triumph. Can you remember those times in your life when you thought all was lost? There's no way I'm going to survive this time. And yet God broke through in some surprising and amazing way, in a way that you didn't expect. I have all kinds of times in my life when I can look back and say that is true. And as we step out in faith to follow God to new places, we discover that he is a God who can take the broken parts of our histories to create something beautiful that we can offer to the world. Reminds me of a story, and I think it was from the Near East centuries ago, and it was a story that was entitled The Cracked Pot. And it's a story about two women on two different sides of the street who would walk a great distance with their jugs to retrieve water from the town's well. The pots were more elongated and they were vase-like and when they would fill them up, they would carry them over their shoulders. So they reach the well, they fill their pots, they place them on their shoulders and they walk back. Each day, one woman on one side of the street, the other woman on the other. But when they returned, the one woman would find that her pot was completely full while the other was only partially full. And she didn't understand why. There's two things that she didn't see. Her pot had a tiny crack in it. The second thing she didn't see as she walked home each day was that the water was actually spilling out on a bed of flowers that had little life along the side of the road. Flowers that because of her water grew to such height and beauty, beauty in a dry and dusty place, beauty for everyone else to see. The message in that story, we're all cracked pots. We all have things that have occurred in our lives that have placed cracks in our hearts. Areas of our lives that have broken us, and yet those things in the hand of our God can break forth to bring beauty in our lives and in the lives of others. This is the vision of Emmanuel Fellowship Church. This is the vision statement of our church. As Jesus pours into you, he pours out of you into the life of others. This is the living waters of his spirit within each of us. This is why God has brought you here to this church. So that you might experience the healing of your wounded heart. So that he heals those cracks and mends those cracks in your heart. That those living waters will pour out of you into the lives of others. This is the gospel story. I can't go any further with that, or I'll have to say spoiler alert. So let's go ahead and read the final verse. Verse 22. 
So Noemi came, Noemi came back from the territory of Moab and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, a Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The light fades. The first of our four-episode series ends. And we're all like, whoa, that was rough. That was tough to watch. I feel so bad, so heartbroken for them. Man, I kind of feel yucky inside. I I want answers. I want to know how they all died. I want to know why these things happened to them. I want to know that things got better. I want some glimmer of hope for their lives, for their future. I want to know that it's not all dark and hopeless. Where is God in all this? I want you to put away the speculation that somehow what has happened to this family is God's judgment or punishment. We think, well, maybe it's because they went to Moab and they should have never went there in the first place. Or maybe it's because the sons married Moabite women. And you know that I couldn't find anything in the scriptures that actually in, in the Israelite law forbade their men from marrying Moabite women. Maybe it's somehow they deserve what's happened to them. There's nothing in this text, there's nothing in the author's word that even suggests this. And first let me say that following God It's not formulaic. Obey God and you're guaranteed blessings. Disobey God and you're guaranteed curses. And for the Christian, we know that life experience tells us there's no consistent formula to why things happen in our lives. As students of our Bibles, we know the scriptures declare that trouble and trials and pain and suffering, it's part of living in a broken and a cursed world. And yes, God will discipline us in love for our sin. He will not turn a blind eye to it. And yes, the consequences for sin is death. It separates the Christian from fellowship with God. And it always is going to have some kind of destructive impact on things that matter most in our lives. But the scriptures declare that our God is a God rich in grace and mercy. That because of Christ, we are not harshly judged. We are never condemned. Our God is a forgiving God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, nor does he repay us according to our iniquity. And that God of the Bible is the same yesterday and no Amy's day, today and our day and forever. He is and always will be the same. And all of this is true for us because of the shed blood of Christ. This is the message of the gospel. So how do we make sense of this stuff when pain and heartache enters our lives? Well, the only thing that we can is hold on to the promises of God. And he promises, Christian, that you will have trouble in this life. It's a guarantee. So don't be surprised when bad things happen. But you can take heart, Jesus says, and not be overcome with despair because he has overcome the world. Remember, you have always, you always have the promise of heaven. No matter what you're going through, you have the security and the promise of a life to come. Whatever chapter you are in your life, whatever chapter is your final chapter, it's not the end of your story. In your trials and the darkest times of life, God hasn't abandoned you. And I know sometimes it feels that way. But the scriptures declare that even when he seems the most farthest away, he was always near and working, even when you can't see it. That your God can work all things, even the worst of things you're experiencing for your good and his glory. 
with God, your sorrows are not wasted. Our God is not a waster of sorrows. And through our own cracked pots, he intends to bring beauty into your life. They can be seen and shared by others in your world. And that is the mission of the gospel. Chris, why don't you come on up? You may have missed it. But in the final verse of chapter one, the author so subtly, he leaves us some breadcrumbs. A small little path with a glimmer of light barely shining on it. So let me read that verse one more time to close. Verse 22. So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law Ruth the Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. That little glimmer of hope is found in three things packed in this one verse. When all put together is going to reveal something pretty huge that's going to happen. If you have your Bibles and you like to underline, the first is Naomi arrived in Bethlehem. Underline the word Bethlehem, the place of promise. And then it says, at the beginning of the barley harvest, underline the word harvest. And then it says, with Ruth, the Moabitess, and underline Ruth. The author is so good For to close episode one, he doesn't want us to forget that the woman God will choose to use in his plan of deliverance is from Moab. He could have just said Ruth, but God made sure that he put in there Ruth the Moabitess. God's not discriminatory on who he loves and who he draws to himself and who he uses. A woman from such a land as Moab. Ruth the Moabites. Just as Ruth was from Moab, we all have our origins in Moab. We all, at one point, were enemies of God, objects of wrath, dead in our transgressions and sin, living life far from Him, and then came Jesus. The story of Ruth is a picture of the gospel. Come back these next three weeks to see what God can do when he brings a person together in a place and fulfills a promise called the harvest. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what a great and glorious God that you are. And we're thankful, Lord, that you, in, in your infinite wisdom and love, have placed this little tiny book in the middle of an Old Testament journey and a story and you placed it there to stop the historical narrative and say, hey, I want you to look at this. I want you to look closely at this. I have something really special to share with you about this real woman in real times that were harsh and dark and terrible. And through that, I want to reveal to you that that in your darkest moments and at your times of trial that, that I'm the same God, that I'm there and that I'm working and I can redeem anything, and I can bring anything for good in the darkest things of your life and the most hard things you're going through, I can bring good in your life and for my glory. Lord, we just want to acknowledge this morning that we're, we're all cracked pots. And Lord, I know that there's some sitting here this morning that, that need your healing touch. 
And I pray, Lord, that each of us, wherever we are and whatever pain we're going through, whatever trial, whatever disappointment, whatever discouragement, that we would bring those to you and allow you, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals, to touch the innermost parts of our heart and bring healing. Mend the wounds, mend the cracks that are in our hearts, Lord, for your glory and honor and praise, that we truly might become a people, though wounded, as you pour into us and have those beautiful living waters within us pour out to others and touch and heal the cracks in other people's hearts. And we ask that in your name, Jesus. Jesus.